Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Virtue is more to be feared than vice, because its excesses are not subject to the regulation of conscience. Is a quote from Adam Smith, the Scottish economist, philosopher, and author, often referred to as the father of economics. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest's life was distinctly altered after being introduced to the world of economics, and in this podcast, encourages us not to take the easy way out and follow the social rhetoric or the path of least resistance, but the opposite, at a time of enormous upheaval. Our guest today is Dr. Martin Parkinson, AC, who served in Commonwealth Government leadership positions on all facets of economic, social, foreign, defence and national security policies for almost 40 years. As the Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and the Treasury, Martin was Australia's most senior public servant. During his tenure at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and as Secretary to the Treasury between 2011 in 2019, Martin led key public sector organisations during a period of considerable political uncertainty, serving under five Prime Ministers during his time. He was also Secretary of Australia's inaugural Department of Climate Change between 2007 and 2011. Martin is also no stranger to the private sector, with an extensive history of engagement with Australian and international business. He is currently Chancellor of Macquarie University, a non-executive director of Worley Limited, North Queensland Airports, and male champions of change, and is a member of the Northern Territory Economic Reconstruction Commission. He has served previously on the boards of the Reserve Bank of Australia, Oracle Limited, the German-Australian Chamber of Industry and Commerce, and chaired the Australian Office of Financial Management. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this timely discussion, Martin addresses the big issues. What do we want as a society? What is important and where are we headed? So sit back and enjoy. The big challenge. Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Glad to be here. Martin, what is inequality to you? And the reason I ask the question, I'm hoping you might talk us through a bit about your upbringing and how it influenced your career. That's a good question to start, isn't it? So to me, 
Look, people often talk about income inequality or Mm -hmm. wealth inequality, but I think the biggest challenge in Australia is inequality of opportunity. So if you think about uh, income inequality, it hasn't really changed that much in Australia uh, over the last few decades. The last couple of years, you've seen the people in the top 20% pull away a bit. But each of those groups, each of those um, uh, quintiles has grown roughly the same pace uh, until recent years. The disturbing thing about income inequality, though, is how few people move from one income group to another. That is, uh, there's an intergenerational issue that people get stuck. So they're, they're stuck at the top because they're born into high income or wealthy families, they get advantages through um, through contacts, through schooling and, and so on, and that, that perpetuates, or they're stuck at the bottom uh, where you know it's very hard to see people move in their own lifetime. Uh, but the equally disturbing thing is it's quite hard to see people move move from the level that their parents were in. So that intergenerational inequality that gets built in is problematic. Um, wealth inequality in Australia is is what it is. You know, you you can't really address wealth inequality until you start to think about equality of opportunity and, yep. and uh, income uh, inequality. So coming back to me, I mean, uh, you know, like most Treasury Secretaries for the last 40 years, I think Bernie Fraser, Ted Evans, Ken Henry, myself, we all came out of working class families from rural and regional Australia. Mm-hmm. Most of us, or in fact, I think all, all four of us were the first of our families to finish school and first to go on to university. Uh, and so I've always thought that um, access to education is the ladder that um, allows for mobility income and mobility in, in our community. So for me, the big challenge around inequality is how do we give kids, particularly kids in rural and regional Australia uh, and Indigenous kids, how do yeah. we give them the opportunities to you know, sort of move up to have a, a wider set of opportunities than they're dealt with uh, just because of where they're born and the families they're born into? And being a working class kid, during your generation, has that changed much compared to the working class kid of today's generation? Uh, I think there's probably more capacity for a kid who gets through high school to get an, a university education. But the problem is whether whether they can get to the end of high school. Yeah, okay. That is, so much of the inequality is actually baked in earlier, um, and it goes to things such as access to preschool education, quality of primary and secondary. A really important thing is the extent of ambition that parents have for their kids. Um, I mean, you've often seen talented kids who don't get the opportunity to go on because their parents can't imagine their child in those circumstances because they can't imagine themselves in those circumstances. So it often comes down for the kids who do make that transition to sort of one or two influential people at various points in their life. I think I read somewhere you said people like me shouldn't shouldn't aspire to a university education. That's right. Why, why was that? Why was that entrenched? Uh, 
Well, you know, I was going to school in Victoria in the 60s and early 70s, mm-hmm. and it was very much a case that you were streamed. Okay. Uh, at the end of primary school, you had the choice to go off to high school or a tech school. Uh, working class kids would go to a tech school. If you're a, a male, you'd do woodwork and sheet metal. And if you're <laughs> right. a, a female, and there'd be expectation you'd do sewing and typing and home economics. And there was just quite rigid uh, views about where where you would go. So, you know, I never had any sense that people looked at me and thought, this is a kid who can go on, finish school, go to university. Uh, it was very much a sense of this, the social stratum uh, that I was in had very clear expectations that, well, we were who we were and you wouldn't, you wouldn't change that. And, and one of the great ironies is that uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about these issues and wondering why it was that my people always seem to get the, the raw end of the deal. Uh, and so for me, you know, one of the great ironies was I went from uh, Victoria going to a tech school, which would have finished at year 11. And because my dad took a job in Adelaide, we moved to Adelaide. I had to go to high school. I had none of the prerequisites for doing uh, year 11 and 12 um, uh, electives at a high school. So I had picked up economics uh-huh. and I'd never done English literature. I hadn't done a language. No. So I couldn't do any of those sorts of, of topics. So I picked up economics and all of a sudden I got to understand concept of human capital, opportunity cost. And you know, uh, then it became, yeah, I wouldn't say suddenly the shingles fell away from my eyes, but mm. uh, it was clear then that for me, that there was stuff going on here that I needed to understand. And it gave me the first opportunity to think about the world in a more holistic manner. And when you were going through that period of time, how important was your grandmother to you? So my grandmother basically brought me up till I was five. Okay. So my mum and my um, uh, natural father uh, divorced uh, okay. not long after I was born. And she, uh, my mother is, worked as a nurse's aide in various places around Victoria. And so I um, lived in stall in country Victoria with my grandmother and would see mum when she came home on weekends. Uh, and my grandmother was very important because uh, she was one of these people that would never, uh, would never tell you things, but would ask you, you know, why do you think such and such. Why is that happening? And so what she did is she constantly piqued my curiosity uh, and, and and she was doing it deliberately. Uh, and, you know, for that, I'd be forever grateful because she's uh, she, she was really the person who put me on that path. Uh, and then my mum remarried and uh, my uh, mother and, and stepfather were both very keen to see uh, see me go on, get a good education, uh, but it was very much a case of sort of fighting those expectations uh, from the, the sort of people around you about, well, why would you have an expectation of going to university? You're a kid from the working class. So you're a kid from the working class. You actually break with the mould. You go to university. You said you're starting to enjoy the, the big wide world of economics and start to challenge classical thinking. You're looking at the world of poverty and why generations are caught in this whole vicious circle. Why then move into public sector? Uh, 
again, another really good question. I think it came down to a sense of yeah, the whole world. You got a whole to world it. to choose from, Martin. You got you know you're one of those few kids going for university in those days. That's true. Uh, and I went to university in Adelaide, and the the great irony is that I um, uh, <laughs> I saw this. Uh, this ad for Treasury cadetships mm-hmm. that uh, one of my um, fellow students had drawn to my attention. They were saying, you should go for this. And I said, ah, there's no way a place like Treasury is going to take a kid like me. And uh, Jeff Harcourt, who was then professor of economics at Adelaide, and some of my fellow students just urged me to do it. And then I ended up putting in the application to Treasury. And as you say, the rest is history. Uh, but why why the public sector? It was a sense that government could actually do good uh, and that the best way to help uh, the maximum number of people was to to do it through government. But I never expected to stay in Treasury. Okay. I joined, I thought I would spend a year or two there. Um, Jeff Harcourt had this great saying that you can't expect the opposition to play on your home ground, play football on your home ground, yep. if you weren't prepared to go and play on theirs. And uh, and I thought that um, the policies being pursued by the Fraser government were inimical to the interests of, of Australia. Uh, and so I thought I'd take a, a, some time to understand what they were doing and why, and what better place to do that than in Treasury. But I saw it very much as a stepping stone to um, going to do other things. What I didn't realise is that you know, starting in the department in 81, going to ANU and doing a master's in 82, coming back in the beginning of 83, we we're just on the verge of this period where economists were going to be front and centre in all the great public policy debates in Australia. And I was hooked by that stage. Can I ask you a, um, a bit of a left field question? We're going to talk through your career and we're going to learn a lot from you today and your insights on how the machinations of politics and public policy come together and the broader aspects to the local and global economy. But Mun, with all your years of experience and standing back now that you've moved on, is our model of how we formulate and execute public policy through our political and public servants system the most optimum model? And the reason I ask that You've worked with ministers who may not be there longer than three years uh, at a time. And yet underneath them and overseeing the departments, you've got highly experienced professionals delivering policy. It just makes me ask the question, who runs the country, standing back and looking at it as someone who pays my tax? And is this the very best model we've had because we've inherited this from the Westminster system? Well, I think you could ask yourself, what are the alternatives? I have absolutely no problem uh, with public servants being seen to be in the roles for a long period of time and serving multiple ministers and multiple governments of, mm-hmm. of all persuasions. I mean, that's the that's the beauty of the Westminster system, okay. that the public servant is, uh, is not non-political in the sense that you have to understand how politics operates, but you're apolitical in the sense that you're not aligned with either political party. So I'm sure if we... Um, now asked some people in the Labor Party, they would think that I probably was liberal-leaning. And if you asked some people in the Liberal Party, they would think um, undoubtedly that I was Labor-leaning. So I think that's sort of a pretty good place to be, which is, uh, I think people would say on both sides that you know, you're know you essentially a centrist uh, and you think that 
the, the natural way to operate as a bureaucrat is to uh, develop ideas, test ideas uh, with ministers, but when governments take a decision, then your job is to implement it. It is not a case of ministers saying, we'll do the thinking and you'll do the doing. That's okay. not how the system works. Uh, and it's naive for those people who think it could work that way. Uh, and if you want evidence of that, look at look at the experience that we're going through now with COVID. Uh, this has been a fantastic uh, case of politicians relying on expertise. Um, and it's medical expertise and it's the economic expertise. Uh, and I think one of the things that, as an aside, one yeah. of the few positives that will come out of COVID, hopefully, is uh, greater trust by the political class in the bureaucracy and the expertise, mm -hmm. uh, recognition by the community and the political class that um, it's really easy to run down the institutions and belittle them, okay. but boy, you need them in the midst of a crisis yeah. uh, and you're seeing the Australian public service at its best. Uh, and I think hopefully the third thing I'd, I would hope to see out of this is that community begin to have a bit more faith in politicians. We've gone through a long period where the community has dismissed the political class. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, a lot of that's been because of the behaviours of the political class, but uh, but it becomes really quite a corrosive uh, environment. Uh, it means that politicians become scared to take high-risk decisions because there's little little trust. That little absence of trust means it's very hard for the bureaucracy to consult with the community around policy decisions that might be taken, uh, and they feed those things in, and people... Uh, begin to doubt both the beneficent intent and the competence of government, and you end up with an erosion of trust. Uh, so hopefully, you know, one of the things that will come out of COVID is that some of those trends will be reversed. During your period of time, do you think we've got the the political class to get us there? Are you comfortable with the standard that exists and the debate that exists? Well, I know it's a tough question, but it's, at the end of the day, yeah. you know, we're, we're a country which... Uh, so much to off offer, but um, we've, it looks like we're missing a number of opportunities. And as you said a minute ago, the public sector have risen to the occasion. Are you hearing the debate by the politicians rising to the occasion? Well, I think the challenge uh, for them is ahead. The, uh, in the midst of COVID, it's very easy for everybody to come together. Um, what will be interesting is as we have to think about how we rebuild our economy, um, and, and I'm sure we'll come back and talk yep. about that later, but how we how we go about rebuilding our economy uh, mm -hmm. is going to require uh, all sides of politics to basically put aside some of their ideological shibboleths and try and come together in the national interest. Uh, are our politicians capable of doing that? I think they are. Are they as experienced in the wider world as political class of the past? No, they're not. Um, and I think that's, that, is a, that is a difference. Uh, you see, in my view, um, too much of an easy pathway, which is I play university politics. Yeah. Uh, and one of the great ironies of university politics is, as Henry Kissinger said, it's most brutal because the spoils are so little. So they learn this style of winner-take-all. They then parlay that 
experience into you know, a junior advisor job or an electorate officer's job with a, an MP. They work their way up the greasy ladder of the political party, um, find a seat, they get pre-selected, uh, they go in. They've really not had the sort of experience that you saw in, say, the Hawke cabinet or even you know, the Howard cabinet or you know, preceding that. Yeah. You know, think about what you had in the Hawke cabinet. You had shearers, you had university professors, you had people who had done all sorts of different things and they had they had broad experience, broad life experience. And you know, I've said this in the past, there'd be no business in Australia that would promote or appoint someone to a senior position without having confidence that they'd had training in that area or gave them training. And yet we we take our politicians in, uh, they, they get elected. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to send them through training programs, but those got all defined as rorts. You take groups of people from both sides of the aisle yes. and you'd take them on an international trip and you'd expose them to policies that are being done elsewhere. They'd learn about those countries, they'd learn about those policy areas and they would work together as a group of Australians, not from one particular party. A lot of those things have gone out the window and we've not put in, in place anything that, that would would um, substitute for that. Now, uh, a very senior former politician once said to me, if you work hard, you can learn as a backbencher about social policy and you can learn about economic policy. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to learn much about defence policy and it's impossible to learn anything about strategic and intelligence policies. So people are thrust into these roles and we haven't, as a system, provided them, I think, with sufficient uh, support uh, building blocks as they go through. So can I ask you, why then do you think both sides of the fence are putting forward people who probably just are too inexperienced to represent their nation? I think it's just the way in which pre-selection operates Mm. in, in our political parties, which is... You know, you've got to get uh, the local constituency to support you. So you spend a lot of time focused on that. But that's always been the case. Uh, that was that was true for a Mick Young or a Neil Blewett when yep. they when they were pre-selected, as it was for a uh, uh, for a John Howard or a, um, a Peter Reith, Peter Costello. Uh, but that didn't mean that they didn't actually have quite successful careers. Uh, or experiences before politics. Uh, and that's the bit that I think is missing. Then from your experience and what you're seeing, do you think we're spending enough time in drafting and thinking through what this country needs in regards to long-term policy? Not the short-term, three-year, get me across the new, I know it's the biggest criticism, but we've been plagued with it now for many, many years. Uh, in fact, we can actually talk about what you were in charge to do. In fact, you established Australia's first Department of Climate Change in 2007. Um, and I'm sure we're going to ask you, I'll ask you the question, how much progress have we made there? But I also look at um, those who've come and gone, the Prime Ministers, Mr. Howard, Mr. Rudd, Mr. Rudd twice, Ms. Gillard, Mr. Abbott, Mr. Turnbull, and now Mr. Morrison. And we're still, still trying to cover off the climate change policy. Yeah, well, look... <laughs> Um, I had an almost 
almost 40-year career. And in that time, the first 28 years was uh, Malcolm Fraser, Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, John Howard. Yeah, okay. And in the last 12, we've had six prime ministers. As you said, Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, um, Abbott, Turnbull, and now Prime Minister Morrison. I think it's impossible for any body to take a longer-term focus with that sort of um, instability at the top. Now, I think if you look at what both both major parties have done in terms of uh, how easy it is to remove a leader now, they've made it much, much more likely that we'll have stability in leadership for longer periods of time. But in systems where you could just change the leader overnight and you never explained why the leader was changed, then it's not surprising that people's trust in the political class eroded. Do you think we're lacking in terms of visionary leaders? I know Mr. Morrison's doing a great job, but um, some would say he's an outstanding manager, not a visionary, and that the last visionaries we had were many years ago. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts there. Yeah, this is, a chicken. this is a really good question, Greg, but there's a bit of a chicken and egg issue here, isn't it? The vision of, say, Hawke and Keating, yeah, exactly. for example, yeah. came out of uh, the 1970s and this sense that Australia had gone through uh, a decade bookended by two recessions. So the early 70s recession, early 80s recession. Yep. Um, in between, we'd had stagflation. People forget what that was, but you know, stagnant growth, high inflation. Um, and our relative living standards were falling. And you know, Lee Kuan Yew said we were on the pathway to being the poor white trash of Asia. That's right, yeah. And you know, overlaying that, the ALP recognised that the Whitlam era had been a disaster. And if they were to ever be seen as a credible government, they were going to have to be really good on the economic side. So we had that sort of confluence on the Labor side. On the Liberal side, we had the emergence of the dries, frustrated by Fraser. You know, the Fraser government was in many ways a do-nothing period in Australian politics. A wasted opportunity, wasn't it? It was, it was a wasted opportunity, yeah. yeah. And so you had the emergence of the dries, John Howard, uh, you know, John Hyde and others, and uh, they also had, this, had a similar vision and you know Paul Kelly's put it very nicely. He said, you know, we had a uh, a um, a consensus that the status quo wasn't sustainable. Um, we had a consensus in terms of the direction of reform. That is, both sides of politics wanted to deregulate, wanted to give the market more yeah. uh, uh, more of a role, wanted to, a more efficient public sector. And then the third thing is we had. Uh, a set of political leaders who were prepared to put the national interest uh, ahead of their own short-term interests. So if you think about what happened there, Howard basically helped create the opportunity for Hawke and Keating. And Hawke and Keating actually helped create the opportunity for Howard and Costello later. But they also sold the dream to the business community as well, didn't they? They did. And and remember, when Hawke was elected in 83, mm -hmm. the business community was all over the shop. You know, we had the economic summit and they didn't want to do anything. We had the tax summit and the business community really didn't want to do anything. Uh, and, you know, out of that came the, the BCA, out of it came a, a much greater 
sense of the role of business in uh, in the political policy process. And you know, I think that that all contributed to what was essentially the 80s and 90s dream period. One of the things, though, for people you know, like us, if you grew up in that period, you thought that's what government was and you thought that's, that's how policy was made, when in fact, I think you can't divorce it from the context. So come to today, pre-COVID, yeah. we've had 28, 29 years of uninterrupted economic growth. People have forgotten what sacrifices had to be made to reform this economy to deliver that growth. They'd got to the, I think our community, and by this I mean all members of our community writ large, uh, had become complacent. They just assumed that growth would be automatic and they got far more interest in talking about the divisions of the spoils rather than the creation of of the, the sort of cake. And do you think also the average Joe Blow out there or fellow Australian had more interest in politics than they do now? My, my impression is my, there are too many people turning off and therefore we're losing that engagement of debate. Uh, again, I, I, think, I think you're right. Um, okay. The issue for me is, and, and I like to contrast um, it this way, during the 80s and the first part of the 90s, yeah. Every time international visitors would come to Australia, they would be astounded by the quality of the economic dialogue that they'd find on the front page of the leading newspapers and the ability to turn on the television and see sensible discussions about big long-term policy issues. Um, What's happened since then is the breakdown of um, the business model of our media I think has been really quite problematic. The emergence of social media mm-hmm. uh, meant that we used to have forces that were dragging views to a centrist compromise, and now social media actually allows you to uh, choose your own news. So it used to be that you know I could choose my opinions, but you and I both had the same set of facts. Now. I can go and talk to people who have this identical worldview to me. We can make up our own facts and we can think that that's reality. So we've lost that sort of almost, I don't want to call it glue, but that sort of centripetal forces that um, that would actually hold the place together. Uh, and now, you know, and I, I hope she, she won't mind me saying this, but I... Um, I once illustrated this to uh, then Prime Minister Gillard by yeah. saying, look, it's like uh, I used to think that uh, redheads uh, are destroying my country. Now, remember Ms. Gillard's hair colour, and she said, watch it, Martin, you're on dangerous ground, <laughs> uh, at which point she laughed uh, outrageously or uproariously. But, um, but the point I was I was making was that Say I've got some really nutty view, like redheads are destroying the country. Yeah, yeah. I'd go to the pub on Friday and have a beer with you, and uh, you'd, I'd say this, and you say, oh, "Don't be stupid. How can a redhead, you know, how can redheads collectively be destroying the country?" I'd go to the footy on um, Saturday and say the same thing to uh, to one of my mates. And uh, and they'd say, don't be an idiot. You know, how can that be the case? And, or I'd go to church on Sunday and say the same thing. And you know, one of the other parishioners would pull me up. Now, I come home from work. Mm-hmm. I jump on social media. 
and I say this, and somebody 10,000 kilometres away says, mate, not only are you right, but this is what you can do to do about it. Yeah. So there's a fracturing of our social cohesion. There's a fracturing of our political cohesion, a fracturing of, of um, I think, the ability to do longer-term policy. And we haven't found we haven't found a new normal that allows us to work our way through that. And just on that, there's a thing called courage as well. And do you think the politicians, because of the, the advent of social media, uh, are very quick to change their mind? You, know, you talk about the redhead example. You could have the other the other uh, note coming back to you. You're, you're completely wrong. You're insane. Who the hell are you to say that? And then there's a persecution. And you're seeing yep. rather than people putting forth their ideas and trying to express that, People are being destroyed these days, and therefore we're not even actually taking into full consideration the ideas. And I think it only takes one or two people to push back on a politician at the moment who's maybe lacking the foresight, the backbone uh, to stand forth. They're swaying in the wind. That's also causing a lot of frustration and a sense of trust with us, the voter, saying, well, you're standing up there on that platform. Well, there's a number of premiers who have just done it just recently. We can, I won't say the names, but it's pretty obvious. They've been blowing left, right, and center. Pretty disappointing try and put yourself in their position. It's very hard for them to distinguish uh, how many people are uh, have a view. Mm-hmm. Uh, all they can hear is the amount of noise. And uh, when you look at things like um, Sky After Dark or social media, yeah, yeah. then you're actually you're actually getting a megaphone. And that megaphone may be being used by only a very small number of people, um, but they haven't found a way in which to filter those sorts of things out. Um, and in part, that goes back to what I was saying about social media uh, or the or the erosion of the of the traditional quality media. Yep. It used to be that we had the time to do the thinking about a policy issue. Yep. And you could go out as a bureaucrat and consult with parts of the community. You could test ideas. You could then bring them back. Um, you know, and you're doing all this in conjunction with the politicians. You could bring them back. You could rework them. And you could basically hone them up. Okay. What happens now is as soon as anybody gets a sniff that somebody's working on an issue, all of a sudden there's an organized group uh, or perhaps a disorganized group, but a group that, that sort of organically comes together that are only there, mm-hmm. un- only united by their opposition. Ah, right. They've got nothing uniting them about what their view of the positive view of the world is, but they're united in their opposition. And they can be united in their opposition for a whole variety of very, very different reasons. That makes it really hard if you're a politician to work out just what's going on here? Um, part of the part of the response uh, has been to want to reduce the amount of consultation that's done around policy. That means that uh, you know, sort of, rather than consulting about the direction of policy, consultation now often is only about the implementation. Okay. People feel that therefore stuff is being thrust on them. They're not partners in this. Yes. Uh, and and I, that's a very different, very different environment um, to to what we did when we were successful back in the in the eighties and nineties. I don't want to talk about the eighties and nineties as 
as somehow you know a magical period. In many ways, it was the aberration, yep. and it was caused by what I said, you know, in terms of that context. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very different in an environment where you've had 28 years of uninterrupted, 29 years of uninterrupted economic growth, yep. to a situation where uh, where you had you know sort of a, a lost decade and you know, an expectation that there would be another recession just around the corner. Martin, I. I wouldn't mind talking to you a little bit more about um, one of your biggest challenges, which was to lead that whole discussion and implementation around climate change and to arrive at a policy. What's, what's, it, what's it been like and why, is, and why has it almost cost, or maybe almost at least five prime ministers, almost their role? Yeah, it's become the, um, it's become the third rail of Australian politics, hasn't it? You know, the... The, the live rail which you transmit the electricity into the train. <laughs> yes. um, there are some people who uh, just reject the science and they're the flat earthers because they, they will say, no, it's, it's just not real. Well, the chemistry has been known since the mid-1800s. Uh, I mean, this is not if, – if there's a conspiracy that's been going on for – you know, well over 150 years, mm-hmm. you'll never convince those people. You'll just never convince them. There are others who will accept that climate change is real, but they struggle with the idea that mankind is uh, is contributing to it. And they're pretty hard to convince too. You can try, but what you've got to do is take take on their arguments and show them why their arguments cannot be consistent with the observed facts. Then you get a group of people who genuinely uh, are concerned about moving ahead of the rest of the world. And they, they are worried about taking action on climate change because they think one of two things might happen. Either um, we will adopt an approach that will turn out to be inconsistent with the rest of the world, or we will act in a way that um, leaves some of our businesses uh, losing some competitive advantages. Mm-hmm. I've got a lot of sympathy for the people who have those views. And so when we designed the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, yep. we really focused on how did you support those emissions-intensive trade-exposed industries because they're the ones who, if we're seen to be moving and other countries aren't moving in lockstep with us, then you've got to find a way to support those, uh, to help them manage the transition. That group that was worried about Australia ending up with a system that was out of step with the rest of the world, well, the solution there is international engagement international collaboration. It's actually, you know, things such as the Paris Agreement and the Kyoto Agreement uh, and acceptance of the of the international rules about how this is going to operate. So those two groups of people, I understand why they might be uncertain about acting and nervous about acting, but you can actually give them comfort. And I think we had in the CPRS, we had designed world best policy and it was, you know, we have to remember that that only failed by one vote in the Senate. And it was the Greens were voting against the government. Yeah, I remember that. So ask yourself now, if you were a Green 
who supported voting down the CPRS, what have you gained? Here we are, you know, a decade on, we've still got a manifestly inadequate target. We're not doing enough on mitigation. We're not doing enough on adaptation. What I found coming into this this whole area, uh, and I had no background in climate change, so and that was in fact one of the reasons why I ended up being asked to to lead all this work by John Howard okay. in 2006, and yep. then Kevin Rudd when he became Prime Minister. And was Mr Howard a big supporter of the time, or was he thinking, look, I've just got to get across this? Uh, I, th- I think he genuinely felt that for the first time he could see a path forward. Yeah, right. So I would put it in two, in two stages. Robert Hill came back from Kyoto, and Howard lauded him for the job he had done and told Robert to start, and Robert was the Minister for the Environment then, to start designing emissions trading scheme. And so in 1999 and 2000, under uh, Robert Hill as Environment Minister, there are a series of papers put out about the, you know, the first steps towards the Australian emissions trading scheme. Uh, and John Howard was very supportive of that. Then you go through this period where there's lots of opposition, the change of government in the US, people think, no, this is an issue that's gone away. Um, And all of a sudden, you get to 2005, 2006, and the business community, which in a way had been holding back, or it had been a reason for the Howard government to hold back, jumped over it. I mean, they, they left it behind. And that was driven in part by two things, I think. One was um, a sense that this climate change thing is real and people are going to take action. So we'd like to be at the table designing what action needs to be taken. And the second was, well, there's also a chance that we'll have a Labor government in 2007. So we'd rather see this designed while we know we can we can be a, an influential party. But to John Howard's credit, he said, you know, uh, I want this to be in place no later than 2012. And in Kevin Rudd um, campaign, the other side said, well, I can do better than that. And I want it in place by um, no later than 2011. So we went into the 2007 election with this being bipartisan and right through the CPRS and then up to that very end point where Penny Wong was negotiating with the then opposition spokesman being um, uh, um, Ian McFarlane. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah. And Kevin Rudd had the right view, which is this had to be a something that the LNP and the ALP did together if it was to survive. Okay. Uh, and then you know, we all know what happened to Malcolm Turnbull's leadership. Yeah. And the stories are that if Joe Hockey had have been prepared to vote against the um, uh, the CPRS, that he would have had the leadership. Um, he said, no, I think we have to do this. Uh, and so Tony Abbott became leader. Uh, party room decided you know, that they were going to oppose it. Um, and then it went down in the Senate the, the next day by one vote, thanks to the Greens. So here we are, a decade on, We've made no real progress on adaptation, no real progress on mitigation. Um, so well done, Greens. So what do we do now? Well, you know, 
the the CPRS was probably as good as it gets in doing a domestic uh, strategy. Covered about seventy five percent of the economy. Okay. The carbon pricing mechanism that Julia Gillard got up with the support of the Greens um, and the two independents, uh, it covered about sixty percent of uh, of the economy. And while it wasn't in a sense, quite as uh, comprehensive as the CPRS, it, it was working. It got replaced with direct action, um, which seemed to me to be really the policy you have when you're not having a policy. And, and that's not a criticism of, of Greg Hunt. He, he had to um, find something that was acceptable to, uh, to Tony Abbott and the, the climate, um, the people who didn't want to act on climate in the coalition. And to give uh, that and in its new form, the Emissions Reduction Fund, to give it give it its dues, it does no harm, and it does it does some good, but uh, it's not a it's not a sufficiently comprehensive response. So, you know, we then had Malcolm Turnbull with his clean energy target yep. developed by uh, Alan Finkel, yes. which was essentially emissions intensity scheme yep. uh, that got killed. Uh, so in many ways, our last best chance was the uh, National Energy Guarantee, yes. uh, and Josh Frydenberg worked and worked and worked that, and again, we almost got there, but it was used to uh, to tear down Turnbull, and now Scott Morrison really has nowhere to, to turn uh, in terms of doing something comprehensive like that. Uh, and remember, the, the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, was still only the only the power sector. The other mm-hmm. sectors of the economy were were going to require alternative uh, policy approaches. So I think Scott Morrison is doing the only thing that is realistic at the moment, which is to focus on the technologies. So the technology roadmap that that he's uh, he's trying to have, or he's he's trying to develop. So you're a supporter of that that play at the moment, eh? I wouldn't say I'm a supporter of it. I'm realistic enough to accept that at the moment we will not get up a price on carbon. Yeah, okay. So if we're not going to get up a price on carbon, then investing in the technologies that we will need when we decide to act is the right thing to do. Now, people say the price on carbon is is really a penalty. In fact, I think it's I think it's the other way around. What incentive uh, do I have as a business to switch technologies at the moment to uh, lower emissions technology? No, none, because um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know the value to me of those new technologies because they're often they're nascent. So yes, we need we need to invest in those. So a point of a price on carbon was to do a couple of things. One, it was to give guidance to firms on the likely cost of not acting. Second, it was to send a signal to investors about there are potentially big economic payoffs here by you putting your money into the sorts of technologies or or process changes that will allow firms to avoid uh, these penalties. And the third and the really important thing was by creating a long-term price. So the thing about those early schemes was we realised that the, what the Europeans had done wrong was their, their focus was too short. 
It was only a couple of years ahead. And if you're going to make long-term investment decisions, you know, yep. you're talking assets that are 30, 40-year lives, yep. you want to have a fair idea about what the likely price of carbon will be over the life of that asset. Yep. Now, you can't, you, you can't know that with certainty, but if you create a forward price, then it allows firms to use hedging instruments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is then the carbon price is no more of a risk for them than is wage rates, exchange rates, any input cost. They can manage that. It's just the usual way in which you manage those risks. So in a current environment, if we can't have any of those things, yeah. at the very least what we can do is invest in bringing those technologies on. The danger I see in all of this is that if it's left to governments, governments will rule some technologies out and rule others in. And, you know, I think if you don't have the whole sweep of technologies in front of you and allow the market to work out which ones are going to be best, then you run the risk of ending up in a bad position. So, you know, in other words, it might be that if you're going to rely on public funding yes. to drive a technology, yeah. um, and I decide that you know I want to do modular nuclear, for example, yeah. when in fact, if we let the market go, you might invest in hydrogen, mm-hmm. I might invest in modular nuclear, yeah. you might end up with a far better outcome than I do, in which case we'll all go and use, where, where it makes sense, we'll use your, your hydrogen technology and where it you know, where my technology works better, we might use that. But if you leave it to governments and governments alone, then you just won't get either sufficiently comprehensive set of technologies invested in. And because governments will always be saying to themselves, well, if I invest a dollar in this technology, that's a dollar I can't spend on a new hospital or a, you know, a piece of defense kit or yep. you know, tax cut, then you'll, you know you'll end up with less investment in the pursuit of technologies than you'll get if the private sector does it. So the beauty of a price on carbon is it actually gives you those three incentives and lets the private sector get on with it. Government sets the framework and then gets out of the way. Have we had the people in leadership capable of selling that to corporate Australia? Do we or did we? Well, a bit of both actually. Well, it's clear that neither party's interested in a neither major parties interest in carbon price at the moment. I mean, Anthony Albanese said that on TV only a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Uh, and it's very clear uh, in the, the current government's view that they're not a supporter of a, of a carbon price. So it's a moot question, I think. You look at other countries around the world, Martin, who are planning 20, 30 years ahead, and we can't, we can't think more than five years ahead. You know, you've been battling this for 10 years. Everything you said was logical. Okay, people have the right to debate, but um, wow, a lot of hard work with not a lot to show for it. No, and and, and that's the that's the really disappointing thing. And it wouldn't be so bad if if while we were dragging our heels, dragging our feet on um, uh, on mitigation, that we're at least investing in adaptation. But we're not, mm. and we've got all these assets that are at risk of being damaged or stranded because we haven't factored in adaptation to a changing climate into their capital cycles. So there's no point you know, replacing a bridge in an area that's going to be inundated over, you know, more 
um, more often over time with the sort of bridge that's been there before when it's time to replace the bridge. Agreed. You know, one of the things I found when I first went into this area was there was almost an unholy conspiracy or alliance between both ends of the spectrum. Because if you're a climate change denier, mm-hmm. you couldn't talk about adaptation because that was acknowledging that climate change was real. And if you're a climate change, you know, the, the believers, the ones who, are, who have got religion on this, you weren't prepared to talk about adaptation because you were worried that that meant we'd lost uh, on mitigation. And it really comes down to those of us who are in the middle of saying, you know, you've actually got to work on both adaptation and mitigation. Uh, the International Energy Agency work shows that even if countries did everything they've committed to do now, we're still looking at 2.7 to 3.5 degree rise in temperature. Now, the IEA is not a bunch of crazed lefties. You know, it's the International Energy Agency, and and they're saying that. So. You know, if we're not going to mitigate, we better get our skates on and start adapting. Or swimming. Well, you know, it's going to come down to how do you get sustainable water supplies? What impact is uh, change rainfall patterns and change temperature patterns going to have on crop production? You know, remember the Ghana review said that by the end of this century, uh, as much as 80% of the Murray-Darling Basin um, production will be gone. We'll lose wow. um, that sort of that sort of contribution that we currently get out of what is our major food bowl. Which we're supposed to be the Garden of Asia, aren't we? Well, yeah, we love pointing out the fact that we <laughs> we produce enough food for seventy-five million people. Now, it doesn't mean you know, and and Gano was not saying that. Uh, we couldn't still produce things there, but we'd be producing different things, and so we'd have to adapt anyway. Uh, but we need to start. We need to get serious about those sorts of issues. Speaking of being serious, this is a pretty serious time for Australia at the moment. It's the economy, and uh, with COVID nineteen, we're still going through it. Could be through it for some period of time. What's your greatest concern around COVID nineteen and Australia? So. Australia had, going into this, had some big challenges. Geostrategically, uh, our region, the world, the Indo-Pacific, is the centre of competition between the US and China, and that's only going to get worse. Mm -hmm. We were effectively in dispute with our major trading partner, China, on a number uh, number of fronts. And they were trying to uh, peel us away from the US. Uh, so essentially, we're in an effectively you'd describe as a negotiation of our future sovereignty. Uh, so that hasn't gone away. If anything, it's been sort of confirmed, hasn't it, where the Chinese stand? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and I've, I've said this publicly. I think, you know, the Chinese um, ambassador, when he came out and made those threats to us, yeah. actually did us a favour because Australians can no longer pretend about what the Chinese government is. The reality of it is right in front of them now. So I've heard about the threats, Martin. So how, how as a nation should we respond to such things? Well, I think you've got to recognise that we are more effective when we're joined in other country, with other countries mm-hmm. in dealing with China. Yep. You've got to be measured in the language uh, and 
frankly, saying that uh, we needed a, a review of what happened in Wuhan was absolutely the right thing to do. To then say, akin to weapons inspectors going into Iraq, well, that really just sort of completely undid the good work you'd done in the, in the first part of that sentence. Yes. Uh, and then to do it without actually having lined up a whole pile of other countries to say the same thing at the same time was, I think, pretty, pretty naive. Mm. But you've got to, you've got to be firm. You've got to be clear with the Chinese about the Chinese government. And, and I'm, when I say Chinese, I'm talking about the government, not the people. And yep. the people are a very different group. Mm-hmm. You've got to be very clear about where our interests are. We've got to acknowledge where their interests are. We've got to agree to disagree, but to uh, to be in a position to keep talking. Now, um, we're not the ones that stopped talking. They did. And so really the ball's in their court. Now, we're in the freezer. We're going to be in the freezer for some time. Welcome to the new reality. You know, big countries uh, like to conduct relationships bilaterally because they've got all the power. Yeah, right. So for countries like us, we need a multilateral system. Does multilateral mean multi-partner in that sense? Yeah, well, multilateral means lots of countries involved. Yep. Yep. Um, so, you know, and, and you need rules of the game. And one of the great ironies is that, as uh, my good friend Alan Gingell points out, that for a small, open economy, a trading nation like Australia, uh, if we had been given a blank piece of paper, we could not have come up with a set of rules to manage the world economy better than what developed post-World War II. For a long time, we've talked about that rules-based international order being under threat. Yes. Well, it's not under threat. It's gone. It, it doesn't exist anymore. And it doesn't exist for two reasons. One, the US decided that it was no longer interested in shouldering as much of the burden in terms of leading the coordination and collaboration that's required in the system. Okay. In other words, it was looking for more payoff purely in its own interest. Mm-hmm. And the second was the emergence of the, the current Chinese president, where he took he took China uh, in a very different direction than the one in which we, I think we'd all hoped that, that it might go in. And it is now more muscular, more assertive. It is interfering in other countries' domestic politics. Yep. Uh, in ways that go well beyond classical diplomacy. And we were right with foreign interference uh, work that we did to say, well, it wasn't directed at China, it was directed at, at all of those countries that, that do those sorts of things. It was perceived by the Chinese as directed at them, but it was the right thing for us to do. And we've got to protect our sovereignty. And, uh, you know, and we've got to push back. Martin, we're going to need a lot of help to push back. That's right. And that's why you need to do it as a partnership. Is that relying on the US to come and help us? No. I mean, if you're talking in a military sense, yeah. um, I'm not, I'm not, that's not where I'm going. No, I'm no, no. saying you need um, to work closely with countries that are in similar positions. So for us, you know, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, Indonesia, yep. Yep. India, yep. Uh, are the natural partners for us to be talking about. How do we manage China? And manage is not contain, right? I mean, Mm. the idea of, you know, from the the Cold War 
that somehow you're going to contain the Soviet Union. Yeah. Well, that, that was fine because in a way you had two separate blocks and there were no interlinkages or very, you know, there was a bit of, bit of bleed in trade around the margins, but essentially they were two autarkic systems. There was the Warsaw Pact yes. block and the rest of us. Yeah. Um, now, China is an integral part of the global economy. Yep. And the idea that we're somehow going to disentangle from them, to me, is is just naive. What we will do is we will find areas where we will want to do things differently from them. And again, as, as Alan Gingell has said, we want those to be small gardens with very high walls. That is where, where we want to protect things rather than share uh, with them. But the sort of broader global supply chains and like, while they will morph post-COVID, you'll have shorter supply chains, you'll have more diverse supply chains. China's not going to disentangle from, from the rest of the, of the globe and neither is the US and definitely we aren't. You know, we're totally dependent on trade with countries in our region and China's in our region. Where do we stand morally? And what I mean by that, you've looked at the history of China's, and particularly now, human rights. We have to keep doing what we've done, which is, um, you know, we used to have human rights dialogues with them until they stopped that. Okay. And we always used to forcefully put our position, but we did it. We did it privately. We did it quietly. And, uh, you know, I think at times we had success. But if you look at, say, the current situation in Hong Kong yeah. um, or the Uyghurs, uh, we've been, as a country, quite clear in our um, public statements, and I think that's entirely the right thing for us to do. So the sleeping giant has awakened, Martin, mm -hmm. and we know they plan a long way ahead. Who does the planning for us a long way ahead? And what are we planning? Because, look... As you know, this is an opportunity to sit back and start thinking. The game has changed, as you said. The rules are going to change. Now, how are we going to be making sure that we're going to be successful 30 years, 40 years, 50 years out if we don't now start doing that planning? So who leads that charge? There's got to be a recognition in the community that we need to do that. Um, and, that uh, and so you know, perhaps, well, perhaps if we sort of... Can we just park that question for a bit and come back to it? Because yeah, sure. it's related. It's related to what you asked me about COVID and the economy. Yeah. Okay. So the biggest problem that we are going to have, you know, I started off by saying, well, we had that geostrategic context, and that hasn't gone away. No. Domestically, going into COVID, we had had very weak productivity growth, very weak income growth. Economic growth was quite anemic. Now, the supply side of the economy determines your potential growth rate. And the supply side of the economy can be thought of in a number of ways. But uh, one way we popularized earlier this last decade was the three Ps framework. So population, participation, and productivity. And they basically together determine your potential growth rate. Population growth is going to be very sluggish, mm. and this year it, it'll be negative because of all of the uh, temporary migrants who have left. Participation, uh, female participation, will continue to rise, but it'll have a smaller positive impact. So those two things together, labour utilisation, we've known for a long time will not 
contribute much, if at all, to growth over the next decade. So it really comes down to a growth app comes down to our productivity story. Uh-huh. And productivity is nothing more than a fancy word that talks about the outcome of how clever we are when we combine capital, labor, and land and technology. But if you look at our productivity performance over the last decade, uh, it has been running at about a quarter of its long-run average. Now, if we want the same standard of living, pre so, th- so this is all pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. So if, if we were sitting here having a conversation, how would we sustain the same standard of living? Yeah. I would say to you, we would have to almost double our productivity growth rate. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Now, now we have COVID. So we've still got those two problems sitting in the background or two, two contextual issues sitting in the background. Mm-hmm. We're in the midst now of the worst recession since the Great Depression. Now, how, how deep will this be? We don't know. How long will it last? We don't know. But what we do know is that with you, when you have a recession, the unemployment rate goes up. Um, and let's say, for argument's sake, the unemployment rate peaks at around 10%. The last time we got to a 10% unemployment rate was after the 91 recession. And it took a decade to get it back to about 5%. Yeah, but also, Martin, if I looked at the depression numbers in those days, they were using different numbers to define unemployment, were they not? It was oh, more, yeah, no, it was, no, it was I'm, more I'm than talking, one hour a week I'm, being employed. Yeah, no, I'm I'm talking about 1991 recession. Yeah, I know. Where the unemployment rate went to 10%, yep. and it took us a decade to get it back. Yeah, right. So if we think, if we, think we end up with double-digit unemployment rates, mm-hmm. you asked earlier, what's the biggest concern I have? How do we deal with long-term unemployment? Because um, you know, in that period after the 90s recession, we actually grew quite strongly. Going into COVID, we've been bouncing around about 2% per annum for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So it's the same story. If we're going to bring that unemployment rate down, we're going to have to grow this economy. And what are the things that we need to do? We'll need to drive faster investment. We'll need a really good set of trade strategies. We'll need to foster innovation. We'll need to increase the returns to investing, so tax reform. We'll need to do a big investment around innovation and skills and capability of our people. Now, you can say those things, but then you can immediately think, well, there's a political debate around every one of those things. And we've seen that over the last decade. So going back to what I said right at the outset, we're going to need the political class to put aside its short-term interests and come together focused on some of these longer-term challenges. And it'll only in the context of doing that does it make sense for us also to be starting to think about what do we want the economy to look like? What do we want the society to look like? Because these are going to be big issues for us. You know, do we want do we want a, a larger permanent underclass? Now we've already got a, effectively a permanent underclass, but do we want it to be larger? No, oh, we don't. I don't. I don't. It's not no. the sort of society I want to live in. We have to accept that we are going to come out of COVID poorer than we anticipated we would have been pre-COVID. We're going to have debt-to-GDP ratio that it's going to be well 
well, it's going to be at least 40%, and it may well be up around 50%. Uh, we've only been above 20%. Gross debt to GDP ratio is above 20% in times of war. So this is this is going to require us to mobilise our community in a way that we have not done, you know, and didn't even do in the 90s. We have not the 80s, 90s. We, we have not done it outside of a of a wartime footing. So we need we need the sort of circumstances that we created in the 80s and 90s that drove so much growth, and we need to replicate that outcome. But that will require a different set of inputs, different set of policies than was required in the 80s and 90s. And we haven't even begun to to have those discussions as a community yet. And you say those discussions as a community. What does that actually mean, Martin? Because not everybody's got are going to participate in that discussion. So who are the key people that we're going to have that discussion? What timeline are you going to put to it? Because we need answers pretty swiftly and we need an action plan, as you're saying, fairly swiftly, do we not? Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, National Cabinet is is a good place to start. Okay. You've been happy with that so far? Yeah, I think it was a great initiative. Okay. Yeah, one, yeah, one experience I've had in my life of COAG uh, is that uh, COAG is not a place that – COAG is, is a sort of time warp that if you're trapped in – um, you can never get out of. So having having a national cabinet um, and revamping Commonwealth state interactions, mm-hmm. um, to my in my mind, is is fantastic. Uh, the challenge will be whether or not it is as effective once we're out of the crisis and when we get down to the nitty gritty of day to day stuff as it has been in the crisis. Where's the government at now? Are they, is the government, Martin, at the moment still just solving the crisis? Are they, are they turned their mind to what you just talked about? So they've they've started the process of the longer term thinking. So the Nev Power Commission, yep. the COVID Commission's been asked to think about that. Okay. You can see the wheels of the bureaucracy are, are, are turning on this. Place like Treasury thinking about, you know, okay, yes, we've. We've, we've got to get to, got to get to the budget. We've got to get out of COVID, and what then do we need to be doing? So working backwards, you know, what sort of thinking needs to be going on now? But look, I'm I haven't been in government for well coming up to to ten months, so eleven months. So I don't know what's going on in detail, but I'm pretty confident that that thinking is definitely underway in Treasury. Okay, because the big concern is one day we're going to pay the bill back. Yeah, and look, you know, the only way you'll pay this is um, well. Essentially, there are, there are three ways you can you can pay this bill. Um, one, you can tax people till the cows come home. That's not going to do a lot for your growth story. The second is you can inflate the real value of the debt away. That is, you can unleash high inflation. Well, we haven't seen any inflation for a long period of time, and it's hard to see. That we're going to see any inflation, so there's really only one way, and it's the only way you deal with unemployment anyway, which is you've got to grow the economy faster, which then comes back to the right mix of economic policies that allow you to do that, um, and that means you know, we're going to have to revisit things like our tax system, yeah. both personal income tax and corporate income tax. We're going to have to think about 
the role of uh, of stamp duties in the states, you know, getting rid of those, replacing them with a, a different form of tax base. You know, we're going to have to start consciously thinking about where are these things that are gumming up our system. Um, we're going to have to think again about our regulatory environment. You know, we've done a lot of things over the last decade that were probably good things to have done, but when you accumulate them up, they're going to make it harder to set up and start and run businesses uh, and employ people going forward. So it's always going to be a fine judgment. Mm. You know, you don't want to throw away regulatory requirements which go to protecting workers' health and safety or protecting the environment or, you know, giving people access to information. Um, but you've got to you've got to get the balance right, and you've got to make sure that uh, regulations are implemented as efficiently as possible, and um, do as little damage to our sustainable and that's the important word sustainable growth performance. Martin, while everything I guess is under review, should we actually seriously look at how many levels of government we have? Is this the time if we're going to start to question everything? Uh, uh, look, Malcolm Turnbull used to say. Um, complaining about the states is like complaining about the mountains of Switzerland. They're just there. You just accept it. And yeah, but well, Malcolm I mean, wasn't well, Malcolm wasn't running the show when we had COVID nineteen. No, his point was to say that focus on the things you can deal with yeah. rather than the things that you can't. So, do we really want to have a constitutional debate now about the abolition of states? No, I mean it's pointless. And if you look at say local government, Victoria led the charge on this with consolidating local government. I think it was under Jeff Kennett. Yes. Mike Baird did the same in New South Wales. You know, I think we can improve the operation of each level of government. And I think we could go a long way to being clearer on the accountabilities, all right, and who's responsible for what. But I don't think you gain anything by having a debate about whether or not we can abolish the states or you know, sort of get rid of the existing number of states and local governments and just have bigger, let's call them loosely states, yep. but have more of them and so somewhere as a halfway house between the second and third tier of government. Okay. I just don't see it gets us anywhere. Fair enough. Now, you're also Chancellor of Macquarie University. Can I ask you, what is the role of the university? So I think the critical thing about universities is is twofold. One is um, the ability to teach people how to think and and critical thinking. Uh, and the second is the pursuit of knowledge that may not have immediate payoff. And I think, you know, Australian universities uh, as a sector are really at a, at a crossroads. We've had a system since the Dawkins reforms in the late 80s uh, that has encouraged universities yep. into a certain sort of sameness. And I'd like to see much greater differences between them, ranging from, you know, so a, say a rural or regional-based university that perhaps focuses only on teaching through to, you know, um, a set of world-class universities that, uh, you know, really deeply research oriented, you know, and basically are ranked up there next to the Harvards and Princetons and Oxfords and Cambridges of the world. Now we've got a bit of everything, 
Mm-hmm. And I think you know one of the things that would be good to see is a bit more discrimination between the universities in terms of what they're what they're on about. And Martin, are you comfortable, I guess, on this sort of proposition or this comment? Have universities, do you think, overly focused on the business of education as opposed to the product of education? And have a look at uh, where the, the scale of these universities these days. Students who could go to universities during the day, electing not to, but to go via online. Okay, take COVID out right now. But isn't the premise of university to have intellectual debate and engender a new way of thinking? And, and, you know, and that could be done at the bar, that could be done on campus. Are we, lo- are we losing sight of what the foundation of universities was all about? Look, I think that's a really good question, and it's quite a deeply philosophical question. But whether you think universities are in the business of education or whether they are a um, they should be some sort of entirely publicly funded entity, what is clear yep. over the last twenty years, yep. and this is true with both sides of politics, is they have put in place a set of incentives that have driven the universities to the form they're in now. What do I mean by that? Well, we have capped Commonwealth-supported places. That is for domestic students to go to university without having to pay full fees. So now the universities get, and I'm going to speak very broadly, so if any of my um, university colleagues are listening, they can pick holes in this, but I want to make the the broad point. Essentially, universities are trying to educate people and undertake research. Mm -hmm. The cost of educating a student is essentially the fee that they now pay. So the Commonwealth essentially said, we we don't want unlimited number of students going to university because that'll impose a hit on the budget. They've said, we want students to pay differential amounts, depending on what course they do. Very sensible. But the sum total of the Commonwealth contribution plus the student contribution pretty much only covers the cost of running the universities. So how do you fund research? So most of the universities, so, so there's some Commonwealth funding of research, but it's predominantly in the medical uh, sphere. So what universities have done to, to fund their research is they've gone after international students. Yeah. yeah. And the international students pay higher fees than the Australian students, and the universities therefore cover the cost of educating that student Plus, there's a surplus, and that surplus goes into uh, the research bucket. So if you think about what's going on now, if one of the consequences of this is a and, – and, and international education is a $38 billion a year export earner for us. So it's yes. our third largest export, yep. um, and it's the largest export in Victoria. So if we lose a considerable chunk of that – and you know estimates are pretty wide ranging at the moment but let's let's say we lose in you know over 3 or 4 years that builds up to something like 15 or 16 billion dollars where are we going to get that money for research so the universities have responded to a set of incentives 
that successive Commonwealth governments have put in place. Now people are criticising the universities for having too many international students. Well, the solution to that is that the public funds the research or, or we don't do the research. And when you think about the fact that most of the research we do is in the field of medicine, science, engineering, uh, you know, where, you know, Australia developed Wi-Fi, um, not commonly understood in the community. The work that was done on uh, understanding COVID-19 by the Dowdy Institute in Melbourne, the work that um, is underway at University of Queensland around vaccines uh, for COVID-19. This is actually the consequence of us funding research. So are we not going to do that? No, but if we if we don't find a way to um, to square the circle from this big hole that the universities are going to face, then we will find the quality international quality of our universities will decline over time. We will find it harder to attract the world's best academics. We'll find it harder to attract the world's best students to come to Australia. So we've got. Uh, a very, very significant challenge in front of us. Now, there's this clearly some things that the university sector has to do. You know, some universities have been to put too many eggs in the one basket in mm-hmm. terms of country of origin, but we, we need to work out what we want from our universities as a sector and then either we fund them completely off the public purse, that's one model, Okay. Or we run them as pure businesses. That's the other. That's the other extreme. Or we decide we're sticking in the middle. Where if we're sticking in the middle, then you know we actually need to get international students thinking Australia is attractive and getting them back here. Now there are things the universities themselves have to do. They need to become more efficient, uh, and you, know, you can see that even for those who weren't already embarking on this this pathway, COVID's given them a real wake up. You know, I mentioned before 29, 28, 29 years of growth that engendered complacency. Um, yep. you know, I think the ability to attract international students, particularly high fee-paying students, um, uh, has probably induced a, a bit of complacency in, in the sector as a sector, uh, not necessarily an individual in every individual university. If you look at people you employ these days, Martin, some of the roles you'd argue 15, 20 years ago, you never needed a university education. Why are we encouraging people who would probably be better served to go out and do something different as opposed to going to university to do do a role which one doesn't necessarily require it? And secondly, I thought the aim of the university, again, was to create an intellectual debate and encourage those to foster that spirit to take on the innovation that you were talking about and grow countries. Maybe I'm being a little bit wrong here, but it seems back the door of university has been open to a lot, lot wider than it was what it originally was set out to do. Yeah, so I think two things that are worth reflecting on there. We almost created an atmosphere where um, doing a trade was, you know, being a tradie was a dirty word. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And yet, you know, you're right. We we created the wrong set of incentives for some people. The second thing that we've done is we've gone. I think, excessively into credentialism. That is, we're now doing things at universities 
where we didn't actually need to teach that at university. It could be taught in another level of the education system. Yep. That goes back to my earlier comment that the higher education system has, over the last 40 years, has, has, you know, there have been lots of things that have driven it to a convergent model. And we used to have CAEs, so colleges of advanced education, had teachers colleges and so on. And they all served very good purposes and they were expert at what they did. I went to to tech school in uh, Ballarat in Victoria and the Ballarat School of Mines was world-renowned. And I'm not being critical of, of the university, but the School of Mines formed the basis of what is now Federation University. Are we better off? Clearly, some kids... Are better off with because the Dawkins changes did make it easier for some kids to go to go to a university, yeah. but you know we've gone we've gone I think too far into one size fits all, yeah. and so giving the universities incentives to differentiate their product, so we're all not trying to look like the University of Melbourne yeah. is exactly the the outcome I'd like to see. What is leadership to you, Martin? What is leadership? Because you've seen plenty of them. Sorry? You've seen lots of them come and, come and go. So effective leadership is a skill set that allows you to change the world around you. And if you're not doing that, then you're just managing or administering. So I, I've always said to staff, um, if you take that as a, a vision of leadership, then leadership's not confined to the C-suite. I agree. Uh, every person in an organisation at every level, can display leadership. What differs is the span over which you display that leadership. Are you doing it with your work team or are you doing it across an entire organisation or are you influencing um, uh, an industry sector or a community more broadly? The second thing I think is uh, leadership requires a really deep appreciation of context in which you're operating. You've got to understand uh, how the world is changing. And when I say the world, the world in which you're operating is changing, um, not necessarily the globe. So you've got to understand what's happening. You've got to have a strategy to get you to a better place. And then you've got to have a set of tactics or um, policies that allow you to implement the changes that that you need to, um, to be pursuing. And I think the third element that has always sort of struck me is that a good leader has to be has to be open-minded. Uh, they need to be willing to be challenged. They need to base their positions on rigorous analysis. They need to accept they're not the repository of all wisdom. And that means if you want your folk to be open with you and present ideas and you want to foster a wide range of views so that you test ideas, then you've got to create a safe space for people to do that. And some leaders are really, really good at doing that. Um, And then you get others which are sort of command and control. And I always think that a command and control leader is one who can be quite successful, but when they go, they don't leave much in the organisation. Whereas those three attributes that I talked about uh, seem to me you you can leave an organisation in a much better um, 
much better place. I think the fourth lesson I draw about leadership from my own experience uh, as a leader and from watching others Mm -hmm. is the importance of open communication, really being honest with people. And no matter how bad things are, my experience is that people respond well if they know you are authentic and genuine and you have their interests um, at heart. So even when we've had to make people redundant, people manage those circumstances much better if they believe that you're, um, you are concerned for them and you're open. So those, that'd be the sort of four things about what's, what's leadership mean to me, the ability to change the world. And to do that, you need those, those sort of issues about understanding context, being open-minded, creating that safe space and communicating, being genuine, authentic. What is diversity then to you? Diversity. So I have been on a journey around gender diversity and then diversity more generally over a a long period of time. So part of the founding group of uh, Male Champions of Change. And I realized um, a long time ago that as you think about diversity and um, there's a distinction between diversity and inclusion. So the first thing is on diversity, uh, there's gender diversity, but there's also lots of other dimensions of diversity. So let me just talk about gender because it's in a way it's, it's a simpler um, set of issues to discuss. I was asked by Ted Evans when he was Treasury Secretary to think about how we could foster women in Treasury in the more technical parts of the department. That is, we'd got to 50-50 in graduate recruitment. Women were uh, coming through the system. You could see female leaders or females on leadership pathways, but it wasn't happening fast enough. We did a lot of things then. Uh, When I came back to Treasury after the IMF in 2001, we had made some progress but nowhere near as much as we'd hoped. And so as Deputy uh, as deputy Secretary under Ken Henry, I kicked off another intense effort to you know, sort of improve the uh, number of women coming through into leadership positions. Then I went off to climate change, um, set that up, and through no, no wisdom or insight of my own, I found myself in a situation where I had uh, a couple of male deputies and then at the next level down, I had something like 11 or 12 women out of 13 people. And after we'd we'd been working together for a while, I found myself sitting in a meeting and thinking, you know, this is as technically complicated a set of issues as we'd be discussing in Treasury, but in Treasury, it would be a quite different style of conversation. And this sort of the penny dropped on me, which was that so much of what we had done in the past had been treating the symptoms. We hadn't actually got to what the real uh, nub of the issues were. Um, So we, uh, when I went back to Treasury, we kicked off the Progressing Women Initiative and I thought we'd made 
we made good progress. Um, we were making good progress. We we appointed our first female deputy in 2012. Now, when you think about it, Treasury's been around since Federation, so it took us over 110 years to find a woman who we thought was good enough. No. That's just nonsense. There were lots of good women there. We had just not thought about merit in the right way, and we hadn't questioned the innate way in which we did things. And, uh, you know, by the time I left in 2014, um, my successor, John Fraser, who you've had on here, uh, he inherited women in three uh, deputy secretary positions. Jan Harris, who was the substantive deputy, and then two uh, who were acting because... uh, I wanted to give John the opportunity to make the decisions about who he wanted in his senior team. So you can make change, but you've got to, uh, you've just got to be committed to it and you've got to stick to it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I found that joining the, the male champions of change under Liz Broderick's leadership was great because it brought together a whole pile of business people all of whom were tackling the same problem. We're all at different stages of the journey, but it gave us the opportunity to learn from one another. And I think, you know, it was fair to say that we were able to collectively make more progress than we would have if each had been on that journey by ourselves. Martin, you're one of those rare individuals who's moved across from public sector um, to corporate Australia and holding board positions. You've also been one of these individuals who's worked with the most uh, outstanding leaders in this country. Just standing back as we've just come to the conclusion of, of this podcast and looking at the Australian DNA from when you're a young lad to where we are now and what we're going to require to get through this COVID-19. We've, as a nation, we've faced adversity previously, but we had the larrikinism. We had the fair go, mate. Back yourself, should be right. Don't lose too much sleep on it. Get in there and have a go. Do we still have that or do we need that again? We definitely need it. Every one of those those terms can be loaded with multiple meaning, but the ability um, or the willingness to have a go, to take a risk, to back yourself, if we distill it out to that mm-hmm. and to have others look at you and encourage you to do it and you to encourage others to do it is absolutely central to what we'll need to do. So I, I think you're right to distinguish or to draw out those um, uh, things as uh, as critical. Do we still have it? Yeah, I think we do. But I think we've got to uh, also recognise that we're a more complex community. Uh, we are much more um, diverse in yeah. terms of ethnicity and background, but we're also more open in terms of our private lives and like, uh, all of those things to me are good, but it means that the form of the fair go, uh, the form of you know, sort of back yourself, mate, may may be a little different. Yeah. But frankly, you know, I think one of the, the great strengths about Australians is, um, and this applies whether you're an Indigenous Australian, you're a, you know, Anglo heritage like me, or you're somebody who um, has come in the most recent wave of migration. Is people value the Australian way of life? They value what uh, Australia is to yeah. them and the ability to be themselves, and we should never lose sight of that. 
and we should constantly be that, that's one of those things that's a, those values uh, are the way we see the world and we have to protect those and the language might change over time but we shouldn't lose sight that, that that's what we're that's what we're protecting and encouraging and nurturing okay so just looking at that where do you think we all are at the moment uh, I think we are in a situation where we haven't quite recognised the enormity of the challenge that we have on the other side of um, the virus. Yeah, right. I think once we recognise that, we will come to the uh, realisation this is going to be a long, hard slog. And I hope that that um, is sufficient for us to begin to address some of the things that we've talked about today. Martin, I can't ask for any more than that. You've been fantastic to talk to, and thanks for sharing the tremendous insights. Last question, Martin, which we always finish off with. If you were to look back at that young man many years ago in Adelaide, what advice would you give him today? Oh, it'd be pretty, be pretty clear. You know, uh, humans have uh, one mouth and two ears and use them in that proportion. Thanks for your time today, Martin. It's been a terrific show. Thanks, Greg. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to No Limitations. 